Open your Bibles to Zechariah 14, our final sermon from our series through the book of Zechariah. Being God's people, Zechariah 14 is our text today, and we'll get the entirety of the chapter covering every one of the 21 verses, Zechariah 14. Now, the other thing that was pretty cool this morning, I don't know if you noticed, the sweet young lady that was standing right about over here singing. Yeah, Miss Sarah, where does she go? She, like, disappeared on me. She's not right there where she's supposed to be. Sarah, are you in here? She's out there somewhere. She's, Sarah Dasher, I'm talking about you, and you're out there in the hall. She's... She's waving at me, if you could just see her. There she is. To have a teenager lead us on praise team. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, yeah, you can clap for that. We have teenagers that do everything in this church, and I'm thankful that they serve where they can serve, and they use their gifts. And we have a church that embraces families and then can put folks to work however God's called them to serve. It's a great thing to see. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, it's a joy to be together, to consider the songs we've sung this morning just absolutely inspiring, consider the testimony we heard challenging, and to consider the fact that uh, among others on stage leading us is the first time for a, a teenage sister of ours. How exciting. And we come to your word and we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and open our minds. In a sense, we go, wow, okay, we've studied the book of Zechariah. What have we learned? But in another sense, we go, we got one more sermon. What else is there to know? So, Father, would you speak to us now? Would you challenge our hearts and our understanding through these words written so long ago that talk about a day that is yet to come, that we would know more about you and who you are, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had the dream, some of you may, and maybe that reminds some, or tells us something about you, but we've all seen the movie, right? The king standing up on the edge of a balcony with his queen alongside him surveying their kingdom. I mean, I got to see just the other night Thor Ragnarok, which was cool, okay, so Thor for all you geeky type folks, and uh, uh, um, it was a fun movie, even if you don't know the... Uh, history and all the backstories and all the stuff that's going on. It's just fun to watch this movie with this humor and this action and adventure and these unique characters as well. But there's this amazing kingdom and it looks like you would expect it to look. You know, there's this gigantic golden kind of shimmering uh, castle, you know, and you go in, there's these great halls. It's like, wow, that's the way a kingdom should look, right? This king has got his stuff together. Look at that. And what we think about with a king is that he reigns. He has sovereignty, rule and reign, authority and ability over a kingdom full of people represented by land and trades and goods and all the things that a king does. But we must remember that earthly kings are just but a mere representation of the king of kings, of God our Father. And what we see today, again, is the Lord God. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's God himself, not Jesus. And as we read through, we see that God is sovereign. He reigns. What he says, he will do. What he prophesies will come true. 
I didn't mean to make a rhyme there, but I just did that. Let's try that again. What he says he will do, what he prophesies will come true. I don't know if that's tweet worthy or not, but it's, it's a rhyme. If God says it, you can believe it, period. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So friends, when we read God's word and we see promises in here, we don't need to be going, can God really do that? Will God really do that? We just need to have one question. When will God do that? You might have another question. How will God do that? Maybe a, why will God do that? But God will do it. God will work. Through time, through scripture, through thought, through study, through prayer, we get to know God. And as we study him, like in a uh, sermon today, we see that he has authority and sovereignty. So chapter 14 of Zechariah is the climax of the entire book. I mean, you know, Zechariah wrote this uh, as a, a piece of literature that we would know, that it's moving towards an end, that there's something happening, and we've seen ebbs and flows of the action and different pictures all throughout. And the themes that we've seen throughout the book of Zechariah as we've considered this idea of being God's people, of cursing and judgment, of worship and nations, and God's blessing and the end times and the Messiah, all these things come together in chapter 14. But chapter 14, I've got to tell you, as we get into it, and I'm not going to read it all at once, I'll read each section of Scripture as we're going to talk about it, has caused some people problems in the past. Last week, we studied about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, just as an interesting side note, when he wrote his first commentary on the book of Zechariah, he just ended the commentary at the end of chapter 13. He didn't write a single word about chapter 14. When he was asked why not, well, I need to read it because uh, what was it he said? He says, here is this chapter. I give up for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. <laughs> so if a guy as smart as Martin Luther didn't know what chapter 14 of Zechariah is talking about, I'm going to tread real carefully this morning. Okay, folks. And so I'm going to say that through the study of lots of other people with PhDs and other degrees like that, that I've read the commentaries, and by the Holy Spirit within you, and just the common sense you have, and then the biblical knowledge that you have, I think we can make sense of it. I think Martin Luther sold himself a little bit short. But it's not a surprise, though, that when Martin Luther was you know, a bit concerned of how do we interpret this and what is he talking about, there are some diverse theories about this chapter. Some say that this chapter is actually about the Maccabean revolt that happened in the intertestamental period between the end of when the Old Testament was finished writing and between the time when the New Testament began writing and Christ came. Others say that chapter 14 is talking about a time from the New Testament to Christ's return. Luther was a proponent of that, even though he didn't write about it in his commentary. Others say that this was fulfilled in the past, and then there are most that say it's the future because of the repeated use of the phrase, on that day. Look at the beginning of um, chapter, or, well, verse 4 in chapter 14. It says, on that day. You notice if you read, skim down through with your eyes, you see that phrase again. Verse 6, on that day. Verse 8, on that day. Verse 9, about halfway through, on that day. 
that day. Verse 13, verse 20, verse 21. Seven times in these 21 verses is the phrase on that day. Now, it's not exactly the same, even though it's translated on that day. We'll get to that in a minute, how one of them is translated slightly different. We need to, or it's actually slightly different in the Hebrew, and we need to pay more attention to that. But what commentators most frequently believe, and I would agree with, is that on that day, that the day that Zechariah 14 is talking about is the day when Christ returns to take His church with Him to eternal glory. So it's talking about the end of the earth, the end of the world as we know it, as the eternal kingdom is ushered in. And so this movement that's happening in Zechariah is leading us to this prophecy of what will yet come on that day when Christ returns. So even though Zechariah said, uh, wrote these words thousands of years ago from us, he's still talking about a time that to us is in the future. Now, it might be next day, uh, you know, tomorrow or next week. It could be today. Uh, then again, it might be another thousand years from now. I don't know. We look at the signs of when Christ will return. We see it's more and more as we get closer. But what we're focusing on today is the lesson we get about God's sovereignty from chapter 14. So I've told you all this to lead you to our scripture memory verse of the month. So Chris will put that slide up there because he's been going, when are you going to get to advance a slide, Pastor? And that's Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. And it's the key verse of this passage of scripture and really a culminating verse of the book. And let's read it together. Zechariah 14, 9. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and His name, the only name. Zechariah 14, 9. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, we hear this declaration and it's pretty huge. I mean, we look at you as God. We call you God. We pray to you. We worship you. We study you. We think about you. We involve you in our lives. But this is one of those verses that cuts out all the other little G gods and religions in the earth. That you are the one God. And it's your name as the only name, the God of gods. And so here, Father, as we study this scripture today, we pray that you would remind us afresh of your absolute sovereignty so that no matter the challenge we face in our life, we would be encouraged to know that you, the one true God, are with us. And it is your will we are living and you will carry us through. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Everyone said amen. Amen. Well, your first point on your outline in the beginning of this passage of Scripture, Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 5, is that God is challenged by the nations. God is challenged by the nations. So um, the, I'll use the phrase here, the nations, because that's the phrase that's used in this passage. And it means all the other people groups other than God's people. That's who it's referring to. So God's people, Israel, um, but we can say God's people when referring to us as well. We're not Israel. We're the church. It's different. But the nations. So let's begin reading Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. 
A day of the Lord is coming when you, your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile. The rest of the people will not be taken from the city. And you're like, wait a second. Okay, Pastor Aaron, I thought this was supposed to be like a happy ending chapter. You know, that good stuff's going to happen, that God's going to demonstrate his authority, his rule and reign, his sovereignty over all the earth. And you got captured, ransacked, raped, half the city into exile. This is losing, Pastor Aaron. This is not winning. Go on. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, and the half of the mountain moving north, the half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So let's talk about what this means. Verses 1 and 2 are pretty ugly. It's a challenge of all the other peoples of the earth that don't worship the one true God against God himself. And so that one time, uh, the phrase is different. It's actually translated differently here. A day of the Lord is coming. And a day of the Lord is coming is the emphasis on the Lord God, not the coming day. It's not on that day. It's a day of the Lord is coming. So even the Hebrew syntax is about emphasis on God. So we've got to recall that God's people are favored by God. Yet we never deserve His favor. Unfortunately, many times we assume we do. And that's where we get in trouble. We're so used to being blessed by God because we live in America and we're smart, hardworking people, and we have most of the stuff we need, and we think about life in this fleshly, worldly, earthly possession sort of way, that when something goes wrong in our life, we get mad at God, rather than thinking about the fact that God didn't need to give us any of the blessings because we don't deserve any of the blessings. We deserve judgment, yet God, because of His grace, shows mercy on us, and He gives us His favor. So what you see coming is a terrible situation in verses 1 and 2. But notice verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight. Now this is not uncommon in the Old Testament that God himself fights for his people. Yes, he may use uh, uh, an army, but he may use them in an unorthodox way. And he will do something for them. Write down Exodus chapter 14. Verse 13 and 14. Exodus 14, verse 13 and 14. There's an amazing phrase there. You know, Egypt is coming against them. And it says, God's people stood still and saw the salvation of the Lord. They stood still and saw the salvation of the Lord. That God fought for them. That God did something supernatural for them. You've got to go back and read it. It's a pretty cool passage. Exodus chapter 14. And he fought for his people. Now, verses 4 and 5, something else happens that's unique. It's the first mention of the Mount of Olives in the Old Testament specifically and in the Bible as a whole. 
And there are these apocalyptic symbols that are happening. So the Mount of Olives uh, with its attachment to Christ, Jerusalem, and then an earthquake. But then the mountain splits. Now, whether this is literal or figurative is up for debate. Does God have the ability to literally split a mountain in two by an earthquake? Sure he does. Would God do that? I go, oh, it's up to God. It's his sovereign will. And so whether it's literal or figurative that it splits, we do not know. But what it does is this, that the half of Jerusalem who has stayed, that wasn't whooped up on or didn't have bad things happen to them, they run into that mountain, and in the shadow of that mountain, they are preserved as safe. That through the splitting of the mountain, God protects his people. So God's challenged by the nations. But even as he is challenged, even as terrible, ugly things happen to his people in verses 1 and 2, God does something supernatural to dramatically reverse and those who sought to conquer are about to become conquered. And we're going to see that in these next verses. But let's ask your application question. How does God respond to opposition? How does God respond to opposition? I mean, this is God. He's sovereign. Somebody comes against him and comes against his will. He can do whatever he needs to do. How does he respond to opposition? He's not going to let us down. He's sovereign. But maybe the better question would be, how do I respond to opposition? We know that God is sovereign and anything that happens to us, he either causes or allows for his good purpose. But how do I respond to opposition? Friends, I would remind us of this. Nowhere in scripture does it promise that following God is supposed to be easy. Have you found that in there? It's not there. You think about Numbers chapter 13, verse 27 and 28, and I'll read it for you. It says, we went into the land which you sent us. And this is when the spies are reporting back about the land flowing with milk and honey. And it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And they showed these gigantic grapes they had to carry back, you know, on these poles. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. All the people we saw there are of great size. God's people were to go into this promised land. It was called the promised land because God promised it to them. But when they got there, they went in and they sent some spies to check it out. And they saw that not only was the land great, but the people were great. And they thought, we can't beat these people. Why are we going to have this opposition, God, if this is your promised land for us? There was a reward, but there was also opposition. There were grapes, but there were also giants. And what were they going to do? Friends, we tend to think the same way. We consider opposition as a sign that God may not want us to do that. Or it's not God's will. We think the promised land is where the blessings are going to be. But we forget that sometimes the promised land has to be conquered. And that is God's will for us. A sign of God's will is not the ease with which you obtain God's will. 
Satan can easily and very frequently gives us something that is good in order that we will settle for it rather than wait for God's best. Can I get an amen? Apparently, the very sign of the promised land is the giants. It is the conflict. It is the opposition. But what we must remember is not how we want to respond to opposition, but how God responds to it. That He is sovereign. That leads us to verses 6 through 11 in our second point on our outline. That God triumphs over the nations. God triumphs over the nations. The second point on your outline, Chris will put it up there. God triumphs over the nations. Look at verse 6. On that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. So supernatural stuff is going on here with the earth. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. So in other words, God is changing cosmically. Does he make time stand still? I don't know how he does it. Is this figurative? I'm not sure. But something supernatural is happening. When evening comes, there will be light. Verse 8, on that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and in winter. Many folks believe when Jesus referred to himself as the living water, not only was he referring, standing beside a spring there, but that he was referring to this prophecy that he is the living water. Verse 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord. And his name, uh, the only name. The whole land from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will be like Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place. From the Benjamin gate to the side of the first gate to the corner gate. And to the tower of Hanel to the royal wine presses. Verse 11. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secured. Remember that the city of Jerusalem was symbolic of God's people as their capital. And the temple within Jerusalem that we talked about when we started nine weeks ago was symbolic of God's presence among his people. So Zechariah, in the beginning of his book, which started two years before he wrote this part, was to say to the people, get busy and build the temple. You've got to have God's presence back in your life if God is going to fulfill his will for you. And so what we see in these prophetic verses, in verses 6 through 11, is a changing and a triumph over the nations. That God is going to be king over all the nations. He's going to do supernatural things. And in verse 10 and 11, where it names all these different places, basically it's points of the compass around the city of Jerusalem. It's on the north side, the east side, the south side, the west side. And I did those wrong, sorry. And it's saying the whole city of Jerusalem is going to be safe. And what was the last phrase that I added emphasis when I read it? Jerusalem will be secure. God is saying to his people, I'm going to take care of you. Bad stuff happened in chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. But God is going to do supernatural things to protect His city and His people forever. So God is sovereign, but what kind of people does God want to protect? I refer you back to Isaiah 66 too. I love this verse. 
says, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declared the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my words. You need to write that down, friends. Isaiah 66, 2. You may need to memorize that one, friends. Because do you hear what it is? God is saying in Isaiah 66, 2, I am sovereign. I made everything. I control everything. But who do I respond to when they call to my name? I respond to the person who is humble and contrite and trembles at my words. Friends, when's the last time you read God's word and it so shook you to your core that you trembled at your sinfulness, you trembled at God's sovereignty, and you were humbled and broken before God? God triumphs over nations. But who does God respond to? Humble, contrite, broken people. Your question there asks, what do I know about God's sovereignty. What have I learned from the Bible, from the lives of other folks, from books I've read, from testimonies I've heard? Those things are good. I mean, academic learning, book learning, vicarious learning, watching others is all good. Like the testimony you heard from our brother Gerald today. That's real life. And it's amazing. But now, make it personal. What have you learned personally about the sovereignty of God? In your life, have you seen God show up in such a way that you know, that was God. I didn't do that. Circumstances couldn't do that. Some other person couldn't do that. God did that. God changed a heart. Maybe your heart. God opened a door. Maybe it was a new job. Maybe it was a new place. Maybe it was a provision of a washing machine. I don't know. But did God do something that needed to be done for you? He overcame your pride. He answered your prayers. He provided for your needs. When did God do it? Take a minute and think about when you've experienced God's sovereignty in your life. And I want to give you a moment. I know you can have lots of thoughts in your head as you listen to me talk. But have you got it? The time when you've experienced God's sovereignty in your life. Have you got that in your mind? Nod your head at me you have. Now let's bow our heads and pray, each of us, a prayer of thanksgiving for God showing his sovereignty to us. You pray in your own words, your own way, and you just thank God for what he's done and the fact that you can remember it and you see he's sovereign. Sovereign God, we thank you for the way you have worked in our lives and we look forward to the way you will continue to work in our lives and we pray that you would make us humble, contrite, broken before you in order that you would be able to work your sovereignty in and through us. Amen. Pastor Logan Merrick at Hope City Church, the church plant that's meeting at the Destinations Coffee House there in the North Bottoms, uh, the north end of UNL City Campus, tweeted this this morning. He says, Jesus loves you with a crazy always pursuing, never stop kind of love. He created you for a purpose. You are not an accident. Friends, God triumphs over the nations, but He knows you. He loves you. And He wants to exercise His sovereignty for you. That's pretty amazing stuff.
Let's go on to our third major point in verses 12 through 15. And that is that God judges the nations. God judges the nations. This sounds kind of harsh, man. Listen to what it says. This is the plague which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of another, and they will attack each other. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules and camels and donkeys and all the animals in the camps. Whoa! That's some ugly stuff. And you're like, okay, is that figurative language, Pastor Aaron, or is that really happening? Well, I think on the final day, it's not going to be, you know, camels and horses. It's going to be airplanes and, uh, you know, weaponry of different sorts that are going to come against Jerusalem when you look at prophecies and think how they might spin out in our modern day or ahead. But what you see is clearly pronounced as God is going to bring cataclysmic judgment on those who have opposed him and his will. Not because he hates them. Remember, Scripture says God's not slow keeping His promises, 2, Timothy 3, or 2 Peter 3, 9. He wants all to come to repentance in Him. But those that do not, those that oppose Him, He will oppose and He will judge. Which leads us to our application question there, and that is, why would God cause such trouble? It's not His will that any perish but because He knows humans and He knows our sinfulness. He knows that we will harden our hearts against Him. And because He is righteous and holy, He will judge. Verses 16 through 21, the last verses of the book of Zechariah or your fourth and final point on your outline, is that God is worshipped by the nations. God is worshipped by the nations. Verse 16, Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king. So they weren't all killed, but they realized that God is the one true God, and so they go up regularly to worship him the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll talk about that more in a minute. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. Hmm. Just in case you decided to stay home this year, we're going to make sure you know that you're not in charge and the real God is. The Lord will bring on them the plague... He inflicts, oh, wait a second, verse 18, I skipped. If the Egyptian people do not go up or take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague He inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Why is Egypt singled out? Well, they don't need rain. They have the Nile River. And so God's saying He can't dry up, or He won't dry up the Nile River, but He's still going to plague them. That's why they're singled out. Verse 19. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. On that day, 
holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no, no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Now, we've got to go back and unpack this a little bit because there's a variety of images happening here and we're kind of going, whoa, what's going on here? This idea of the Feast of Tabernacles is attached all the way back to its reminder to God's people that God was sovereign. The end of the first part of Zechariah in chapter 8, verse 20 through 23, you can turn a page or two over, is similar in the image here. It says, Many peoples will inhabit, uh, and the inhabitants of many cities will come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another city and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem and seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. Then verse 23, this is what the Lord Almighty says, In those days ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say to us, Let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. This idea that all nations and all peoples will come to worship God. And that even common cooking utensils will be holy on the day in which Christ comes back. And everybody will cook in them and they will all say, The Lord is mighty and there will be no Canaanite in the house. In other words, all will be believers in God through Jesus. And I think I just answered your question then. Your question... What is the eternal result? When God exercises his sovereignty over the nations in this way, when Christ returns and separates the sheep from the goats, but demonstrates God's sovereignty in this cataclysmic, apocalyptic, end of times way, What's going to be the result? We can ask, why would God do it this way? And why is never a bad question. We might ask, what for? God's declaring himself to the world. He created the world, everything in it, all the peoples of it. We don't know the day or the time in which Christ will return, but we do know he is returning. And we do know he's returning to demonstrate God's power. Not ultimately to cause people to go to hell, but to demonstrate his power in such a way that people will be drawn to him to worship him so that they might be saved and go and spend eternity in heaven as well. So friends, as we sum up the book of Zechariah, I point you back to the title that I chose at the top of your outline. Being God's people. Andrea Cogley did our graphic for us there. And Chris superimposed it on the picture with people behind it. That's the background in this slide. 
But God has us in his hand. And no matter who you are, God knows you. God created you. And he loves you. And he gave his one and only son, Jesus, to die for you. In order that you might know him and his sovereignty over all the nations. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for all we've learned through our study of Zechariah. Just one more book and one more way that we're reminded of your greatness, your sovereignty, and your love for us. So, Father, now we pray that we would be encouraged that as we consider the circumstances we face, We'd be reminded that you're in charge and you're an eternal God and a loving God. So, Father, now, whatever it is that we've got on our mind that causes us anxiety or fear, we bring it to you. Father, if there's anyone here who hasn't trusted Christ as their Savior, and maybe that very declaration is what's causing them anxiety or fear, would you fill them with faith to make their decision public today? If anyone here has already trusted Christ, but they haven't yet said, I need to be baptized as a believer, that they'd walk down the aisle and do that today, declaring their faith in you, the sovereign God. God, whatever it is, we ask that you move now as we're here, your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.